Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. century precursors. Um, the big thing that's happening in the 19th century since the 1800s is the knowledge of the Renaissance, which we've been talking about for the last what, two classes, is finally affecting normal people. And not just educated people, but actually just regular people are being affected by this. So the advances in science and technology, so just on the technology front, are changing everything. Uh, you end up with the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution happens, people have jobs now. Not People had jobs before the Industrial Revolution, but their jobs were very simple jobs. I mean, they weren't simple to do. I couldn't make a barrel. I know that. I couldn't, uh, there was a lot of things I can't do. You know, so if your father was a cooper, a barrel maker, you were a cooper. And that went back as far as you could remember. Or your farmer or a baker, or whatever. The big thing here that happens is that there's the possibility of being sort of upwardly mobile. Now, it's not the same sort of upward mobility we would think about today, where you can start at the bottom of a company and become the CEO or something. But people moved to towns and got jobs and factories. Now, these aren't fun jobs, but you know how much money you're going to make. There's certainty of your income. It's not a lot of income, but you're certain you're going to get something at the end of every week. Yeah, you're, are you working six and a half days a week? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but there is some small amount of time off. And, of course, one of the things they do in the Industrial Revolution is um, employ children. And by employ, I mean you can change that to exploit. So, if you wish, kids end up working in factories. And that's great, because kids can't really fight back. Kids rarely form unions. Um, and you pay them less than you pay adults. So here's some kids. This is in the 1800s. I don't know what they're making, but it doesn't look like they're enjoying themselves. This guy here, I think he's their supervisor. He looks pretty old. He's probably like 14. Um, but those kids are clearly 10 or under. 
right? So people see this happening all around them. And the, I guess we might call them do-gooders, people wanted to feel good about themselves in the sort of upper classes, saw this and were really appalled by it. So some of them were like middle class people, but it wasn't really middle class, working class people. But there were also people in these sort of educated upper classes who said, you can't do this. These are kids. Okay, So you have that. You, in fact, have the founding in the UK of the, uh, you've heard of the society, the SPCA, right? Society, society for Prevention of Cruelty to the Animals. That comes out of the RSPCC, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Okay. And if you've played Assassin's Creed Syndicate, you know you have to go around and free them all and take over different parts of London and also use your knives that are, anyway, um, I've played way too much Assassin's Creed. So, there's that. So the kids aren't working. You've got to have something for the kids to do. It used to be, you know, by the time, you know, once you hit five or six, you're in some small town, and okay, my dad makes barrels. I guess he'll teach me how to make barrels. So no one was getting an education. Little towns didn't have schools, but it wasn't seen as much of an issue because it's unlikely your parents, who are teaching you the trade, the father's teaching you the trades, and is 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 going to be horribly exploitative like they would be in a factory. So it's strange that the ex exploitation of children actually eventually led to, in the long run, the sort of emancipation of children and allowing them to get an education. So in the extremely long run, it was good for kids. Not those kids <laughs> in that picture, but Gener us, generations later, we have universal education. So that's really where that comes from. So like I said, you didn't have the same job as your father, um, which is what you used to always have. It always worked that way. And it's really, the level of upheaval in the 19th century can't be overstated. This is... I've read things where people have said it's as big an upheaval as the agrarian revolution, the idea that we, we stop uh, living in us hunter-gatherers and generally, uh, eventually, live in towns and settle down and farm. Um, I don't know that it's that big, but it's pretty big. You suddenly have major cities that have millions of people. Very quickly, too. Right, you look at the UK, you have cities like that before the Industrial Revolution, places like Birmingham hardly had any, let's say hardly had any, but it was like tens of thousands, and then by 1900, a million people lived in Birmingham. And they still have one MP, and London has 30, because politics are funny. So there's really great upheaval. The great cities of the United States are basically built on places like Chicago. Uh, like the Midwestern cities, Chicago, St. Louis, exists simply because of the expansion and because of the railway, right? So you expand west, uh, and you have to have a railway network, and these are big railway hubs. So there weren't millions of people living in Chicago 
And then suddenly there were. Same thing with St. Louis, same thing with, you could go to basically uh, Columbus, Ohio, any of these sort of Midwestern cities, Detroit. So it's great upheaval. It's, it's, it's unreal. It's, it's, uh, imagine the tradition in your family has been forever. And we'll use the example again. You make barrels. In fact, your last name is Cooper. A Cooper is a person who makes barrels. It's to the point where, or, or you're a baker. Your last name is, oh, I don't know, Baker. Or you forge iron implements. So your last name is Smith. Like, where do you think these last names come from? And then suddenly you're like, no, I'm going to go move to... Liverpool and work on the docks unloading and loading stuff. Because at least I know, I don't have to worry about will I be able to sell enough bread this week. It's like, I will get a wage. It'll be a shitty job. I'll be splitting all the hell. But at least I'll know what's going on. You can understand why people did it. And it's a chance that, well, maybe I'll get some... There's a chance I can make a better life for my kids. It's the first time that kids live better, that the next generation does better than their, their parents' generation, is when the Industrial Revolution happens. Before that, you, you were, unless you got extremely lucky or had some incredible talent that got noticed by someone who had influence, you were just going to be live exactly like your parents did. Right? So the world is, this is a drastic change that's happened. So the big, and I've talked about this many times in this class and others, one of the, the, the biggest mystery, in fact, people called it the mystery of mysteries, was where, so that's a little, the stuff that the next section is set in the stage. The biggest mystery of all in science at the time was where does species come from? It was the mystery of mysteries, it was called. What accounts for the large diversity and the occasional disappearance of species because they had a fossil record? This is, in the eight, this is in the early 1800s we're talking here. This is pre-Charles. Now, see, I'm going to close the door because I'm hearing a lot of yelling out there. I mean, I think it's just in the class. I, think it's doing, I hope. Because I can't, I don't know what went on with the door. And this is especially a big thing in the UK. People are talking about this. And most of these people are also clergy. They're they're usually ministers. Uh, Pretty common, and I've said this before, up until very recently, the most educated people you were going to meet tended to be your local minister. And... They got educated at places like Oxford and Cambridge and learned to be ministers. That was just how it worked. So it's, it was the case that clergy were often university professors. Right? One of these people that was interested in this idea was William Paley. And he was big into the argument from design. The idea that the world is, the interconnection of nature is too perfect for there not to have been a designer. 
Calls the argument from design. This is an, if you didn't invent this argument, this has been something that people have talked about since, well, going way back. I think we talked about some of the Greeks talking about this. I can't, you know, you can't imagine how everything could work so perfectly without there being an invisible hand guiding it all. So the elegant design requires a designer, and the designer, by definition, is God. Right? So Paley was a Christian apologist. Uh, that just means uh, it's a person who is a who uses Christian thinking. They're also they're Muslim apologists. Like an apologist sounds like they're, they're they're saying sorry. That's not what it means. What they're using is they're using the tenets of their religion to explain and understand philosophical and natural problems. That's what it means. Okay, so it's not like it's, they're saying, I'm a Christian, I'm sorry. <laughs> it sounds like that, but it, that's not what it means. So it's apologetics. It's a kind of, it's a philosophical truth. And there are Christian apologists today. And like I said, they're Muslim, Muslim apologists, etc. Like it's not something that's just for Christians. So the argument from design, which is an old argument, uh, I think that's called the teleological argument. So it's that this is so great because so how else could it be so great? Everything working together, unless there was a God who designed it. And that's not an uncommon thought at the time. So, people are talking about change over time. Not everybody accepts there's change over time, but most people, because they've seen the fossil record, most people who are learning at all of this stuff, are saying, yeah, there's change over time. There are certain species just aren't here anymore, right? So, one of the earliest was a guy named Erasmus Darwin. You might recognize the last name, as the last, same last name as Charles Darwin. It's his grandfather. And... Erasmus Darwin said that evolution or change in species comes from a single filament. There's no, I keep saying there's no such thing as genetics. There obviously was genetics. Nobody believed in genes. But I mean, nobody understood genetics then. But what he did understand was that there's some kind of common ancestor, a single filament, a single thing is changing. There's a, 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 a filament, a, a string of being. Okay? And we all come from the same string. That's clever. And then there's this guy, Jean-Baptiste Pierre de Antoine de Monet, Chevalier de la Marque. Or just Lord. Uh, in France, they have great names. It's just the way it is. Like, Napoleon Bonaparte's a great name. He may have been a bully and a dictator, but that's a great name. France had a president in the 1970s named Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. Like, that's just great. That's a great name, Dave Brogda. That kind of sucks. So there's him. Now, okay, his idea is something that, in fact, is still um, influential because people misunderstand the evolution. And his is the idea of the, that there's a chain of being, a ladder, 
I, I, I laugh at Lamarck. <laughs> but I have never come up with any new evolutionary ideas, even if they're wrong. Um, if it's the early 1800s, late 1700s, and you're looking at the world, it's pretty clear who's running everything. It's the humans. Right. And then you can see other animals that are like us, and then decreasingly like us. And it's pretty easy if you're a human, and it's 1790, to say to yourself, we're the best, and everything else is a little bit lower than us, and there's different rankings. That's a pretty easy thing to say, and really, I'll defend Lamarck a bit here, it's sensible in its own way. Right? And so how do these changes happen over time where one species evolves into another? Well, it's the acquire, uh, acquisition, or, or sorry, the uh, maintenance of acquired characteristics. So you inherit acquired characteristics. So if two people or two, let's go, let's make it, let's get people in the equation. If you have two rats and you cut their tails off, you shouldn't do that, that's mean, but if you did, and then mated them, you'd, you'd end up with tailless rats. But a lot of people think of evolution working like this. I talked about this yesterday in Known Behavior, the idea that it's use and disuse. So if you use something, it gets bigger, like exercise, and therefore your children will have, will also be bigger. Right? So classic example of this here where people misunderstand this is they'll say that we don't use our appendix anymore and that's why it's getting smaller. And that's not why. It's, of course, as you know, our appendix is useless. It's a vestigial organ. So it confers no advantage, but it can confer a giant disadvantage. It can kill you. Well, it could up until very recently. Right, your appendix bursts, it used to be your appendix bursts would die. Or, well, well, you took your chances, basically. Now your appendix bursts, you know, you go to a hospital, they take it out, and you go home the next day, as long as you're not in shock. Right? One of the first people who had their appendix removed and used the, the technique that they use today was a woman named uh, Leslie Trombley, it's my mom. She's now but she was three. And they used this weird experimental technique in like 1950. She was like four, three or four. At the Royal Victoria Hospital in the room. What do we do for appendix first? Well, I've got this new technique for removing appendix. So thanks, doctors. 10 years before the madman era. Everything eventually at some point to me is related to that. So, back to Lamarck, who was never in Madman. <laughs> or on The Sopranos. I can relate to everything to TV shows that I binge watch. Uh, it's wrong, but it's getting, the, like I said, evolution is, is, 
think it's the start of my next. Uh, it isn't. It's here somewhere anyway. Evolution's in the air. People are trying to figure this out. So one of my heroes, of course, is Charles Darwin, as you know, to the point where my son, his, my son's middle name is Darwin. Uh, I wanted to name him Darwin, but that was vetoed, probably sensibly. I think it would be a cool first name, but Isabel said, it's like naming him Einstein. I said, no, it's like naming him Darwin. It's totally different, and of course, accepting that she was right. So Charles Darwin, if anything should give anybody who has ever changed their major, remind yourself that Charles Darwin did that too. Now, and none of you were Charles Darwin, nor am I. But remember, changing your major isn't some giant thing. So if, you're, if you ever change your major, like most of you have fourth year, you probably could. But if you ever had to explain to your parents why you're changing your major, and they say, blah, blah, you say, Charles Darwin did it. Yeah. Uh, he was going to be a doctor. That didn't work out, so he decided he was going to be a minister, and that didn't work out. So I'm um, kind of following in the footsteps of Charles Darwin. So try that, if, you know. I've said that to students before. There's two things. About 60% of university students in North America change their major. It's very common, or change the program they're in. And Charles Darwin did. <laughs> so you're probably fine. Uh, yeah, my heroes so would be Darwin, my dad, and so he finds his life's work at Cambridge. So he keeps having these false starts. And then finally he ends up becoming, oh, what we just call a general scientist today. Because he's really important in geology and biology. So Henslow in biology was really influential to him. Okay? Henslow, by the way, didn't like evolution much. When it came out, he was like, that can't be true. He was a Lamarckian. And in geology, Sedgwick um, said, well, Sedgwick, I'll go into Sedgwick in a second, but he was a, he was a big influence in his geological thinking. It's funny, we don't tend to think of, because we're more biologists than anything, we don't have to think of Darwin as being this important guy in geology, but he's almost as important in geology as even biology. That's kind of neat. So he goes on the Beagle. Uh, yeah, he had a lot of contributions to ge geology, but he's, when he's at Cambridge, they're setting up this voyage to map South America around the continent, okay? And they're going to do this by sending a ship out. So Darwin's going, and the, and the captain of the ship contacts Henslow and says, do you know anybody that would be a good, like he's going to come along with us and he's going to just take good notes and he's going to catalog the species. He goes, do I have a guy for you? There's nobody better than this and his name is Charles Darwin. Keep that name in mind. You'll hear about it someday. He didn't say that. I kind of hope he said that. So he goes on a voyage to Beagle. They go around South America mapping it. Okay. Mapping it as if no one has ever been there before because, you know, no English has been there because, you know, that's how they work. And he comes back 
And what happens is he comes back and starts these ideas ruminating. He doesn't have the ideas about evolution in his head yet, how the system works, but he's seen all these different species that are really specialized in different things. Um, one of the things he really liked in geology was this word, and I always mess it up, so I'm going to look very closely, uniformitarianism. Yes. And that's the idea that physical laws have always been the same throughout history. And at this point here, now, are there people who think the world is 6,000 years old? Yeah, but not very many. Most learned people, they probably don't think it's billions, because I don't think they can conceive of that, but they certainly think the world has been around a very long time. And if you say that, this idea of uniformitarianism, um, you're saying that I can, we can look at physical laws of the universe and they've always worked the same way. And if that's the case, if we see some change, evidence of change over long periods of time, we can figure that it's, that's been happening forever. Okay? So that affects his view of geology. Uh, Sedgwick, for example, was the first person to talk about different epochs in geology, different time periods. And... Lyle says, yep, okay, because the world has always operated by the same set of laws. Um, if I see that it looks as if something is eroding in a certain fashion, it's always been doing that. So if I see that waterfalls destroy rock, water's always been able to do that. That kind of thing. So you can say that if that's the case, and you can see it's not much belief to say there's the same laws have always operated. I wonder how life has come about and changed. The Darwinian uh, thought says nothing about where life comes from. It says once life starts. Okay. All right. Does that make sense? So of course, it's contribution to biology is this little thing called evolution by natural selection. Um, and he, he collected species. That's that's what he did, and he was great at it. Um, the reason that he was given this recommendation to go with a beagle was, this guy will find you every variation of everything. It's kind of, I mean, the, the beagle voyage is kind of like, it's one of those things that today, when you see National Geographic specials, where you see a scientist just go out and go do some crazy thing, and you think, who's funding that? And you go, at the end, it's, it's National Geographic. It's that kind of thing, right, to this world society. So the, what happens in Galapagos Islands when he gets there is he sees these finches, and they all have different shaped beaks. They're different species. And then he looks and sees what they eat. And it seems that their beaks are perfect for eating whatever it is their diet is. Oh, this is a pointed beak that's really good at for opening up clams. Oh, this one's really good for digging in sand. It's also true, by the way, when you arrive, you know, in Galapagos Islands, tortoises, big, giant tortoises. And there is, and Darwin wrote about this, so this isn't like something he was ashamed of or something. If it was today, he would be. He tried to ride them. Now, today, we wouldn't try to ride a tortoise. 
But if you didn't think that it would hurt the animal, which you probably didn't, it probably just go inside and go get off of me. You and your giant beard, get off of me. You would. You'd ride a tortoise totally. Right? You look at it, it looks like a great big seat. It's like, well, these could be great. We'll take you to England. We'll all have our own personal tortoise vehicle. I don't think he was thinking that. I think he was probably like, this is, I bet I could try this. I'll write about it. It'll be a great story. It's in The Origin of Species. You can read the episode he talks about it. Well, it's just drawing the tortoise. You did what, Chuck? Wait, huh? <laughs> Strange choice, buddy. So it was the finches, yeah. So he figures out stuff with the finches, but he doesn't understand where it comes from. He just keeps noting how this is amazing. This is amazing. And he finds the argument from design, that's not going to help me in any way, he's saying. And then most scientists were like that, like, uh, it's sort of, I want a natural explanation, not a supernatural explanation. And then, of course, he comes up with it. So the reason I have that title is Richard Dawkins has said, if aliens ever come to Earth, they're not going to ask if we know about quantum mechanics. They're going to ask if we know about evolution. Because that shows you're curious about your origins. I don't know if Dawkins is right. If you were here, I would say he was probably right because I kind of had to thank Richard Dawkins. He was pretty cool. Then I'd wonder why he was here. I've given two talks where he was there, and it was creepy. Because you're sitting there giving a talk, and you go, oh, look over there. Some gene guy's here. <laughs> That's great. I feel really insignificant to say that. I was, in, it was in Oxford and I was giving a talk and I was kind of funny because I, 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 for good luck, I wore a Montreal Canadiens jersey. I'm walking up the stairs in the zoology building at Oxford and I hear in the most posh UK or British accent, English accent, someone go, go Habs, go. It's like, oh, the Canadians guys are everywhere. Other people were asking, what are you wearing? They recognized it was some sort of sports thing. I explained it. And it was sort of for luck, but the, just one guy noticing it was really something. Um, okay, you guys know about, who here have I not taught anything with evolution to? I've taught this to all of you, correct? So I'm not going to go great detail about this because you know this, but you know there's individual variations, some variations are more favorable, and that increases your likelihood of, of, of surviving the struggle for existence and the variations are selected by nature. So I'm not going to give you examples. Salt and pepper moth, done, okay? You know that example. So that's natural selection and all that. Okay. So, yeah, if this was a different course, I would be going into great detail, but I think I've taught everybody here about natural selection. So. Okay, what's the reaction? Because that, for us, looking at some of the zeitgeist kind of thing, what's happening now? What do people, what do people think of this? So, book is published in 1859 in November, second of November, I think. By 1860, it's it's well. By the way, I've told everybody here this that it sells out on the first day, and it's a science book. This is a popular science book. It's a science book, and it sells out on day one. First editions are gone. You can't find a certain though. You can. They're in museums. The first edition of Origins. Okay. So there's these debates at Oxford, and it's 
Um, Huxley, one of the many Huxleys you may have heard of, um, grandson writes Brave New World, uh, brother, brothers, uh, you know, all kinds of scientists and authors. Like it's a it's a very learned family in the UK. So Huxley is considered it's called Darwin's bulldog because Darwin doesn't go to bed. Darwin's like I. Book, man. And, I'm, and Darwin also was very was quite shy, and he he realized that his ideas were to quote Daniel Dennett dangerous. They were dangerous to, to people who thought about things like the argument of design. And he, because he had training in theology, and because his wife was really religious, he didn't want to upset her. And he didn't want to upset things, and he knew he was upsetting things. So he was like, I don't want to debate it. Let's just, let's just do the science, and we'll see what happens. Huxley, on the other hand, was, let's go. Come on. You want to debate evolution? Huh. And just kick people's asses. So there's these debates at Oxford. And we think of them today like debates, but they weren't. It was like a scientific conference. But it was a scientific conference based all on is this true or is it bullshit? Like it was a, it was a week of people presenting papers and, and, and ideas about evolution by natural selection. So it's that important that by June 1860, people are having debates about this. So the classic thing here is Huxley versus a guy named uh, Wilberforce. So Wilberforce asked Huxley whether he thought his grandfather or his grandmother was a monkey in one of these debates. And Huxley apparently, and this is, this is not entirely sure this is exactly what everybody said, but the story goes that Huxley looks over at a friend and says, now I'm not. And he said, he wouldn't be ashamed of that. He would be ashamed of using your great intellect to obscure the truth. That's actually not a good argument, but the whole crowd goes, oh man, he totally, you know, if there was Twitter today, it would be hashtag pwned. Like he, he, like, he, was, he owned him right in front of all these other scientists, and he's like, So it gets accepted very quickly. Because it works. Um, so this is the sort of personalistic, which is this idea versus naturalistic issue. Is it, do we care about it because it's a person said it, or do we care about it because it works? And the unique thing here is, because it works, naturalistic, it works. And the cool thing about Darwin is he's quiet. He's not a guy that's out debating. So it's totally just his ideas that are doing the talking, which I think is very neat. Because today, typically, now, science doesn't work like this anymore. There aren't rock stars. There are, but they're rock stars in their own little tiny world. So no one knows who they are. Like, there are people who, to me, are, like, really famous people, and you've never heard of them. They don't matter to any of you guys. And that's fine. 
So, you know, there aren't these kind of the rock star scientists today are science, science communicators, right? They're Neil deGrasse Tyson, they're Brian Cox, they're people like that. They're perfectly reasonable people, but they're not. The last person I, even maybe maybe Stephen Hawking, but even he isn't, wasn't. I mean, he's not that, but friends who I've talked to who do, have done physics, it's like, yeah, he's okay. I mean, he's important, but he's not new. Evolution's in the air. Everybody's talking evolution. But Darwin is the prime mover. Darwin's the guy that changes everything. Okay? Okay. So let's think about this from a psychology standpoint. So this is a very functionalist, obviously, way of thinking, right? So what does a... behavior accomplish? This actually led to comparative psychology. The idea of comparing different species to each other in their behavior. Um, so this is looking at continuity and differences between species. This led to the study of individual variation. Because if there's variation and that affects selection, let's study individual variation. Because that's just being humans. So that becomes the study of individual differences. Um, and the modern evocation of Darwinianism or neo-Darwinism, or um, what we today call the synthetic approach, uh, or synthetic biology, the idea that um, the modern synthesis, it, has, it takes in molecular biology, it takes in uh, stuff about like sort of DNA and how it works, looking at gene level selection, looking at uh, altruism and uh, inclusive fitness and all that stuff. So that all that now... The beautiful thing about Darwin about, and, uh, is that it stands the test of time, and when anything challenges it, it, can, it fits into theory. And now this is happening in psychology, where more and more psychologists, people used to say they were evolutionary psychologists, and people go, you're what? What is that? And now it's just, it's not even a thing people have to say anymore. Most psychologists, most experimental psychologists are like, if you ask them and say, are you an evolutionary psychologist, they'd say, well, are you asking if I think that we're animals and we evolved and that affected our cognition? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's now become a given. So, evolutionary psychology, at first, was basically concerned with things like the functional aspects of things like mate choice and all that kind of stuff, right? Mostly mate choice. It was a big thing. Sex differences. That kind of thing. Um, now, I mean, it's really surprising if you could find somebody who didn't say, they might say, I don't think about those kind of questions. I don't think about the evolution of cognition, but cognition evolved. Right. So we have a course in evolutionary psychology, of course, which I teach and I developed. Um, but I will also say that I would expect within... I wouldn't be surprised if by the time I retire in like 12 years, something like that, it's gone. Because I think intro psych will just be like that. Because it's the effective evolution on psychological thought has become the norm. It's not a special area anymore. And for the longest time, it's a special difference. So in comparative psychology, 
One of Darwin's last things, so he writes Origins, and then he writes a couple other books on the descent of man, and he also writes this interesting, to me at least, book called Expressions of Emotion in Man and Animals. This is psychology. He's talking about emotion. And he says, we have, when we look at expressions, he's, he's the first person to think about this, the idea of facial expressions in animals and humans, and gestures. And he says, we have serviceable associated habits, associated habits. We have antithesis and direct action of the nervous system. What do all these mean? Okay. A serviceable associated habit is something like when you're surprised and you open your eyes wide. What that means is that's the associated habit for surprise, and it allows more light to get in so you can get more information because you're surprised. It's probably not ridiculous. Things that are antithesis of this are things that actually have no gestures or expressions that have no relationship to any emotion. His classic example is shrugging your shoulders. Right? So if you don't know, you But how does that help you understand things? It doesn't. And then there are things that are direct actions of the nervous system. So when you get angry and you grip your teeth, that's just a direct, that's your nervous system being fired up and having to expel energy. Look, this isn't perfect, but it's pretty damn good for a guy that, before there actually was psychology, to do this kind of thing. Pretty good. And he also talks about other animals doing these same things. That's what makes it interesting. It's comparative. Um, here. Spalding, what am I doing? Um, was another, was influenced this way. And he talked a lot about instinct and how instinct is important in humans and other animals. So things that are built in. And he argued against an empiricist view, the British empiricist view, and if there's instinct, then it's not a blank slate. Spalding's kind of forgotten now, which is sad, because Spalding talked about imprinting 100 years before Conrad Lorenz did. Conrad Lorenz was a Nobel Prize. Um, everybody forgets about Spalding. He talked about imprinting in critical periods in um, uh, birds, but also he talked about a behavior in uh, insects. If you go read, oh, for example, the Wikipedia article, because I want to find a picture of it to put up there, it's, it's, it's like four lines long. No one cares about all of this whole thing. And it's a shame, because it was really way ahead of his time. All right. So that's some Darwin. It's really important in to get an idea about the thoughts, how people were thinking at the time, but we can move on to talk about individual differences, and Darwin's uncle, I think, Galton. Here's Galton. I like now that we can get actual photos of people, it's not just statues. 
A lot of non-psychology contributions. Um, just he was an explorer, like a lot of sort of British gentlemen. Uh, meteorology, he was one of the first people to try to forecast the weather using barometers and such. Uh, he got the idea, he found out that everybody had unique fingerprints and he was able to help Scotland Yard in getting a fingerprint data, what we would call a fingerprint database, and use fingerprints to help solve crimes. I love that he helped solve crimes because that's always sort of the go-to, and they solve crimes, so he did that. Okay, he's like, evolution's cool. That's my, I think, nephew, I think it's nephew. What about cousin? Um, I'm going to apply this to the question of human intelligence. There's differences. There are differences in human intelligence. We know that there's supposed to be variation with things. Let's study this. So he studies what he calls eminence rates. He looks at different sets of people doing different, usually different, basically in England, it's different classes of people. And he looks at how many of them are considered eminent in their field. And what family do they come from? So it is basically genealogies of people. And he writes a book, which is a fun book to read because of how wrong it is, <laughs> called Hereditary Genius. I read this book uh, for a course like this that I took in 1987. And obviously, you can see what the conclusion of the book is, that genius is hereditary. Uh, he finds, and he's done surveys in this book. He used to do that. He's done twin studies. He's looked at Twins reared apart and reared together, like stuff that we get everybody out, sure, of course. Except he's doing it in the 1860s. Pretty cool. Now, it doesn't occur to him, he finds that, surprisingly, genius runs in families. Oh, does it? Really, in really class system oriented Victorian England, really. You think that might have, the, there's also an environmental effect there, Frank? It didn't occur to him. Or if it did, he didn't write it down. But he looked at, it's great because he looked at all kinds of things. And the idea of eminence, he also looked at athletics. Uh, one of the things he looked at, and uh, Bryce would find this interesting, he looked at wrestling. Because there were champion wrestlers in England. And he'd find out that this guy, well, his dad was a champion wrestler. The thing is, there's no coaches back then. Who teaches you? Your dad. So of course it runs in families. Now, no one's... Well, I wouldn't argue ever that any of these things have no hereditary biological basis, but he doesn't even entertain the notion that the environment had any effect, and obviously it did. Right? So intelligence is inherited. Eminence is inherited. Being good at something is inherited. It's not the environment. And it's just so... This is this clearing problem that he doesn't even notice. Or if he notices, he doesn't write it down. I don't think he notices it. Seriously. Getting inside the head of somebody who's an upper-class Brit in 1860 is probably not an easy thing for any of us to do. So this has some pretty big implications for whoops, things like eugenics. We should basically not let the non-eminent breed which I know today sounds like a crazy right-wing idea. It was a not a right or left issue. Smart people generally thought this. 
today we would, you would admit, you would think, oh, Hitler. Yeah, also everybody on the left of the political spectrum too. So it wasn't like this is a right-left thing. This was a, sometimes, sometimes it can work this way. Sometimes people get married to ideas and they shouldn't be married to them. <laughs> Well, if we're going to do eugenics, we have to have accurate measurements. So this is great. Galton goes around, and he has what he calls his anthropometric lab. He travels around measuring people's ability to do things, including things like reaction time. And he does find, by the way, that reaction time correlates with how well people do other cognitive tasks, complicated tasks. And actually, we still find it. You'd be surprised. The lower your reaction time, the better you are at math. It's a small relationship, but it's real. And he travels around, and this is the beauty of this. He was also a bit of a, oh, I don't know, the word huckster comes to mind, because he travels around to, like, county sort of fairs in the UK and has people pay to be his subjects. He doesn't pay them. They pay him. That's pretty smart. So his research is funded by his subjects who are paying to be in his studies. If only science still worked that way, I would be much more productive. Um, so he does these physical measurements of people, sensory motor capacity, and he relates them through this thing he invents called correlations. <laughs> so he invents an early version of what we eventually call the Pearson correlation. See, this is not a dumb man. He's probably... He's certainly, like, as we think, a classist. But everybody was, so, pretty much. He studied imagery. Can you imagine things? Um, he misinterprets, of course, his own data. Because the big thing here is he's misinterpreting his own data, because he's finding these correlations and not finding alternative explanations. Okay? Now, he thought that imagery was unimportant. And because he said, look, I can't find any relationship between imagery and eminence. And he didn't look at things like, well, look at the different kinds of occupations. Do they show more or less imagery? And scientists that he studied showed more imagery than any other group, including visual artists. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, but he didn't think to look at the comparison between groups, which is odd. He studied associations. Oh, learning. And he did a word association test. So he'd give you a word, and then you're supposed to associate that with another word, then remember them back. Is that familiar? And he hinted at the idea that this was an unconscious process. Nobody was talking about consciousness then, uh, at least in terms of formally. But he, t he hinted at the idea that these processes were automatic and we weren't aware of them. He didn't use the word unconscious. Okay. So that's all that's happening in the UK. Over in Germany, um, Herbart took a psychological approach to educational problems. Wait, what? Germany invented modern education. The way that we have education now is German. 
The model is, is German. It's not. It's got some English thrown in there, but the English education system was, was influenced by the Germans too, which they probably wouldn't like to admit. Um, he wants to quantify things. He starts using words like psychology. I don't know if you call him a psychologist. He certainly talked about pedagogy as a science. He's the first person to say we have to study how teaching works. Because in Germany, you have lectures, like we do here. And you have different primary school and secondary school and the university. Right? Well, you have kindergarten and primary school. Kindergarten, gee, that's, uh, what is that word? That's a German word. <laughs> that's a garden of children, a kindergarten. And high school is called gymnasium. Now I'm going to gymnasium to learn math. So my German guy always yells at me. Um, so he looks at what's called apperception. That is a philosophical term, and it means the gray area between consciousness and unconsciousness, where you put ideas together, but you're not aware you're putting them together. So it's above, it, 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 it's organizing perceptions into ideas, I guess is the best way to Describe that. And the goal is to build what he called the apperceptive mass. And you do this by getting people to practice doing things. So students should be, this sounds like something we'd almost say today, right? You want students to be active learners, that kind of thing. I think I'm, whenever students say to me, How do you, what's the best way to study? And I always say, ask yourself questions. When you take notes, write things in your own words. That kind of thing. So it's kind of neat that he was doing that. Look at those years. That's a long time ago. He also said education has to have moral education in it. So we have to teach morals, not just facts about the world. It's a pretty common way of looking at the world back then. Whoops, sorry. Right. So Germany is really ascending. Germany is the most technologically advanced country in the world at the time. Germany doesn't actually exist yet. It's a whole bunch of little states, but they all speak German. And we end up with people like Ernst Weber in Leipzig. Weber is a studies, studies physiology. I wouldn't call him a psychologist. And he certainly wouldn't. Also looks a lot like an older woman. Doesn't he? Anyway, so like, like an angry old woman. That's what he looks like. Could you call me an angry old woman? I'd have to adjust the difference for you. He gets you. Um, so he's looking at two-point thresholds. And he's interested in stuff that isn't just vision and hearing. People, most people, these sensory physiologists, they were called. Right? They were interested in vision and hearing because they were they're pretty obvious things. He was saying, no, let's, let's get even more basic. Let's talk about the sense of touch. So let's do two-point thresholds. And you take calipers and put them on the skin and say, is that two points or one? Is that two points or one? And you know this. If you do it on your fingertips, you can go about a millimeter apart and be right. On your back, it's 10 centimeters. And you can try this with a friend who you trust because you have to take your shirt off. So I'm not going to do this with anybody. That's wrong. But, and you have to have a pair of calipers too. 
which you probably have if you have an old math set. Don't poke the person, it'll hurt. But put it like that far apart and do it on somebody's back between their shoulder blades and ask if it's two points or one, they're right half the time. And then you'll be laughing at them. Then they can do it to you and then they can laugh at you. So it's, of course that makes sense. We don't have as many sensory neurons here. So he eventually figures out Weber's law. And this is with lifting weights, not weightlifting study. Right? It's, which one's heavier, this one or this one? And he's doing that. And he figures out there's something called a just noticeable difference between the weights. And the JNDs are proportional to the smallest weight. So just noticeable difference divided by the smallest weight is a constant. And you probably know Weber's law such that 30 and 33 kilograms are just noticeably different if that's the case. Then 60 and 63 will not be noticeable. So it's not the absolute value. It's a, it's a, a, a fraction, right? And I hope someone got the reference to the talking head song. Sad, sad, sad people. Oh my god, now we're going to talk about psychologists. I think we'll call Fechner a psychologist. He takes a look at what they're calling psychophysics at this point, which is the sensory physiology, and he systematically looks at it, and he looks at the relationship between the physical stimulus and the psychological experience of it. Um, which is basically, again, we call psychophysics. So he writes a book called The Elements of Psychophysics in 1860. I don't know if I'm going to call him as, he didn't call himself a psychologist, and he said Wundt was the most important psychologist, not him. So I figure if the guy himself says, oh, I'm not really a psychologist, we'll give, we'll take his word. But in 1850, 10 years before he writes the book, he gets this sort of inspiration to look at the internal and external psychophysics. And he mostly, his famous from the external, the paper I had you guys look at, which is pretty short, I think, talked about how he also had a whole system of internal psychophysics that he couldn't measure anything with because we, he didn't, the equipment didn't exist and we didn't know enough about nervous systems yet. In fact, there is, why is that that? Fechner Day is, not at. October 22nd is Fechner Day. And people who study sensation and perception celebrate this. I have friends who get all crazy on Fechner Day. It's his birthday. So he comes up with measure, ways of measuring absolute and uh, different thresholds. Pretty important stuff. And he talks about limits. Uh, limit thresholds, so like, yeah, upper limit, lower limit of different uh, sensory systems. And what he does, which is different than what most people do, instead of using discrete stimuli, most people do, he would use a constant stimulus and then change it until, and then, you, so you'd be looking at a stimulus, and let's say it's, um, or, or hearing a stimulus, it's easy looking, so you're looking at it, and, and he's back there moving a dial very slowly, and then, which he's got calibrated to how much current is going through, so it's going to change the brightness of the, of the filament, okay? 
And what he's doing at this point, he's doing this, and of course then the light bulb explodes. There's a light bulb shooting that pretty ass. But he's doing this, and what happens is he knows it's getting brighter because it can't not be getting brighter because there's more electricity on it. But then when you say it's brighter, that's how he determines there's a limit. So he uses a constant stimulus, whereas most people are not using constant stimulus. So it's a, it's a bit of an innovation. And it's because he can do really good measurements of things, of sound, of brightness, things like that. There's even early neuroscience. I got it quotes because, I mean, this is pretty early. But uh, and we didn't call it that back then either. There's the Belmagendula. That's the idea that the posterior root of the spinal cord, ah, sensation. See, it's again with the French. What's going on? Anterior roots, ah, control motor movement. I don't know why that happened. I must have been, no, it can't be that I had French selected as the language. Because I wouldn't. And it auto-completed something? No, 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 that's weird. It's very strange. So people started, there's this notion that nerves have, this is Johannes Muller, the specific energies of nerves. What does that mean? That means that if you are, if something is going to your eye, you're going to experience the stimulus as, as color or, or brightness or something. If something is hooked up to your ear, those neurons will always experience something as sound. So there's two parts of this, and that's the idea that first, whoops, sorry, far ahead. The first thing is that the original, like where, where, what we have experienced qualities in the universe based on the sensory system they're hooked up to, right? And we don't really perceive the world. We're perceiving the actions of our nervous system, which can map on to the real world. Like, he's not one of these people that says there is no reality, man. There's not, that, it's, not the, it's the 1860s, not the 1960s. When madmen. <laughs> okay. But that's pretty cool. Oops. So nerves corresponding to different senses have different specific energies. And he didn't know that actually that's not quite how it works. That it's not that they have different kinds of energy going through them to be visual sounds. So he didn't actually know really how it worked, but that's a good guess. Today we just say it's because of what they're hooked up to, where they go to in the brain. So if you have two different stimuli, and one type of nerve, you've got one type of sensation. And if you have one stimulus of two different types of nerves, you'll get two types of sensation. Okay. So, for example, taste has one stimulus, piece of food, but you smell it and you actually taste it. Right? Most of what we call taste is actually smell. Okay. So that's Muller. Helmholtz, we're definitely getting into a psychologist type. Wow. Um, he measures the speed of neuron 
Impul neural impulses. Oh. He's doing this with giant squid axons, along with another Huxley. Those Huxley, they're, they're all peppered throughout intellectual history. And he, he much to his surprise, it's like, this is very slow. It's going to be much too slow. I would expect it to be much quicker. Again, Germans yell at the end of every sentence. If you've learned anything from this course. That is a joke. I don't speak German. You know why actually people did look all intense back then? So in all seriousness, in pictures, is because, well, first of all, I think people were intense, but also you had to sit still because photography wasn't the way it is today. So you had to sit still for like five minutes of a picture taking in the same place. And you know what's hard to do? This. You can't be all smiling. So people would just sit. That's why there aren't photos of people smiling when the first photos came up, because you couldn't do it. Right? It just literally couldn't be done. But also, I think people were kind of intense. I think German academics were probably pretty intense guys. And this is really, today we can talk about reaction time, things like that. He's one of the people that allows us to do this really accurately. Um, of course, you've probably heard of the young Hel 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 Helmholtz trichromatic theory. Uh, we still talk about that today, right? I mean, taking sensation perception with Dwayne or Lori, probably ran into that. And we have receptions for the three primary colors, red, green, and blue, blue-violet. Uh, that still works the retinal level, actually. So the other colors are just combinations of those three colors, right? Really, at the retinal level, that's how, vision, we, we, that's how we teach color vision still. It's not entirely true, but it's pretty damn close, and it's such a good approximation that we keep using it. That's mostly how theories work, right? Uh, he did some stuff on hearing, too. And he talked about resonance theory. That's the idea that neurons that are detecting sounds tend to fire at the same rate as the sound. And that's partly true. You know it's not completely true. But it's partly true, right? And because today we know that different frequencies are detected at different parts of the cochlea, but that's really the same thing because it vibrates at different rates. Pretty smart. Okay. What else is going on? Friends, Joseph Gall. See, what's with this again? i got to fix this. Proposed something he called craniometry, which later became, of course, phrenology. And he took the, talked about the relationship between the head, bumps on the head, and people's personalities. Here's the basic principles of this complete bullshit idea. Uh, the brain is the organ of the mind. Oh, that's actually true. Okay, so give him that one. The mind is composed of a number of faculties. Uh, that's probably true. Intellectual, affective, emotion. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh-oh. Wait, is this true? Okay, each faculty is located in a specific part of the cortex. Uh, to a point? 
don't know what the uh, is here either. It's the first serious localization theory. In fact, um, most of those things he's saying there aren't completely ridiculous. The part where it gets ridiculous is that it correlates it all with the bumps on your skull. The notions actually, and now, and the map he makes of what is where is ridiculous. But the idea that different parts of your brain do different things, you have different sort of emotional, different faculties in your mind, those are pretty, yeah, that's true. This is the strength of faculty reflected in proportion of brain size? London cab drivers, hippocampal volume. There's something to be said for some of this stuff. The problem is it doesn't affect the lumps on your head. And also, where you had things localized, which is completely and utterly wrong. This is, this, is, this is not true. This is completely, this, this here, not true. Skull reflects, no, wrong. So then everything falls apart. This is, he's like, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Nope. So here's some of the, I love these. So let's look at some of these here. We got cautiousness. So if you've got a big bump here, you're very cautious. Well, there's some good ones here. Uh, ability to compare things. Oh, I've got a big bump here. That's pretty good. I'm a comparative psychologist. Whoa, there he works. Always reminds me of the classic part of The Simpsons, where Mr. Burns, of course, is because he's an Asian, still believes in chronology. And Smithers says, uh, chronology he takes the calipers and he's measuring Smithers' head. He says, of course, you think that Smithers, you have the brain pattern of stagecoach. <laughs> I love that. So phrenology is stupid because um, it's anecdotal evidence. It's all confirmation bias. Like I said, ooh, comparison. I'm a comparative psychologist. Clearly, this theory is correct. Not good. It can't be falsified because if you saw some of those terms, they can have a lot of meanings. So it's hard to falsify. Um, yeah, if anybody said, well, yeah, but that doesn't work here. Oh, that's because of the other faculties combining in a different way. Oh, I see. It was popular in the States. Um, part of this, again, was the idea of traveling sort of road shows coming around measuring your head, and you'd pay to be subjects in their experiments. It was consistent with American values in a lot of respects. This is the idea of individuality, individual difference, right? So it makes sense with American values more than European ones. So it sticks around in the States, or it's wondering it does over in Germany and the UK. Uh, because it's about opportunity. Oh, I just found that you have some special ability you didn't know you had, right? And it's about everybody's unique. It's individuality. It's America, right? It was applied. People would, it was used in courts sometimes. Right, so did he do the crime or not? Well, it turns out he's got a, this part of his law, and then judges will call it science. Wow. Okay. So there's Phineas Gage. You know the Phineas Gage. The nice guy who was working on the railroad all the live long day and with tamping rod. You know what tamping rod is, right? So everybody says the railroad spike wasn't railroad spike, it was tamping rod. So you drill holes into the rock and then you put 
most of them, or maybe half of them, and these little glasses have and people are cold and blow it up. But um, somebody already put a plastic cap in, and what happened is he tamped it, and the tamping line goes right through his left eye. So it causes brain damage, rather serious brain damage, but he's able to go back to work. And people, everybody was like, uh, people made this inference that this part of the brain, the frontal lobe, was where personality was because it changes personality. I still don't actually buy this. I'm not saying, in fact, I think a lot of personality probably isn't from the world. What I'm saying is, if you had a thing go through your head, you'd be pissed off too. That's always been my theory about Phineas Gage. It's like, oh, he used to be so nice, and now he's not. Yeah, I'd be a little bit bitter. And now I have to go back and still do this shitty job? And you people are complaining that I didn't give you a long enough lunch break? I had a thing go through my head. Now, it probably also did affect his control of his emotions. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Speaking of the railroad, if you ever watched the show Hell on Wheels, there's a character named the Swede who looks just like Phineas Hitch. I think it's completely coincidental, but Hell on Wheels is a great show. I love that show. A lot of fun. Okay, Broca, Paul Broca over in Italy. There's this guy named Tan. I think I have Tan's name. Let's remember his actual name. Because Tan was called Tan because all he could say was Tan. He could understand language, couldn't express it. Uh, let's see, I think I have his name written down. Yes, Louis Victor, uh, Victor Le Bon. L E B O R G N E. Let's not call him Tan. Seems kind of mean to me. So Broca had this guy, Tan, uh, or Louis, had some behavioral and emotional problems um, because he had basically uh, a slowly growing tumor, probably. And eventually, Broca gets there just 10 days before he dies, and um, he finds out that this one particular area of his brain is lesioned all to hell, and that's what we now call Broca's area. So the loss of productive speech, motor aphasia, led to the labeling of Broca's area in the left hemisphere. Okay. So now we're starting to get into stuff where we really think, yeah, okay, that's all stuff. It's stuff we've actually made into in classes about psychology, right? So some conclusions. First one, don't underestimate the importance of evolutionary thinking in, in the history of psychology. Uh, you might think it's more of a modern thing, but it's also other stuff. It's about functionalism, which we'll learn about soon. It's about Galton, which we, who was important even though he got a lot of stuff wrong. We see the importance of, not philosophy down here, now we're talking about the importance of biologists. Psychology becomes its own thing when it realizes it's not philosophy. When it realizes we are studying living things and therefore I don't know if psychology realizes this, but it's interesting how the big jump is made into something called psychology when we start caring about biology. So that, to me, is, is, is the two big takeaways. Uh, we don't really have time to talk about that paper. It's not too long. We can talk about the beginning next time, because um, I think we should talk about that Fechner thing. So we will at the beginning of the next one. Thanks, everybody.
Podcatcher. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>